When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday night or Friday afternoon if you're in Melbourne, Australia, as is our guest, Stuart Bell. Mark and Mark here welcome you back to the show at the end of what's been a very, very busy week. Not so much in Formula One, but welcome to one and all on the podcast and to all of you watching on uh, on YouTube. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton, as I mentioned, our special guest tonight, Stuart Bell. You might remember Stuart who joined us earlier in the season. He is an FAA accredited Formula One journalist. He's the producer of the Inside Line. He's written for such uh, websites and publications as news.com, AU, at 7 Sport, at Motorsport, at GP Racing Online, and much, much more. Stuart, welcome back. How are you? Thanks very much, guys. Really pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm well. You know, in Melbourne, Australia, as you said, we're in our sixth lockdown uh, here, but that's okay. I think it's it's probably our toughest lockdown to date. Uh, We're in our second week of it. Could be extended, and next week we'll see our 200th day overall in lockdown, uh, not consecutively, obviously, but uh, there's five reasons to leave, uh, you know, including going for food and exercise. But uh, we're used to it, and that's that's the, the COVID normal as it is in Melbourne, and yeah, doing well, working from home, and uh, enjoying the season so far. Well, it's been a very, very enjoyable season thus far, like you said. And before we get into it and talk about some of the highs and the lows and some of, well, a lot of the controversy that we've seen through the opening dozen races, I've almost lost count how many there's been. But first of all, obviously, as you mentioned, you're in the sixth lockdown in Melbourne and Australia. Things have been a little bit different in other parts of the world. So not so long ago, we found out, we, we heard the, the bad news that the Australian, the rescheduled Australian Grand Prix, that is, is now completely washed off the schedule for this year. And, well, just maybe if you could just bring us up to date on that a little bit and not just uh, what, what brought that about, but also what might happen going into 2022. Well, I mean, I think from for our, from our perspective, it was inevitable that the Australian Grand Prix was going to be cancelled. Uh, certainly, we had we had a number of lockdowns uh, through last year, a long lockdown through 2020 and through into this year. But the current lockdown and the lockdown before it really put pay to uh, to to the Australian Grand Prix simply because we're we're you know pursuing an elimination strategy. So any cases. Uh, one, two, three, four. I mean, we, our current lockdown was put in place with just eight cases, um, you know, daily. So really there's, there's a, a, I wouldn't say it's a paranoia, but it's certainly a, you know, a concern whenever there's cases and just the chance of, um, you know, any sort of event being run here is, is, is very sort of unlikely. And to bring 2000 people in, into Australia for Formula One, which is what the paddock is, uh, it's just not realistic, and certainly they're not going to be uh, be put into hotel quarantine, which is what any 
international traveller has to do to get into Australia two weeks of two full weeks of hotel quarantine, which is just not uh, possible for for the for the Formula One paddock. In terms of 2022, I spoke with Australian Grand Prix Corporation CEO Andrew Westercott a month ago, and they're still looking for early. 2020, they wouldn't. They would like to have March, but I still think that's quite realistic, and it's likely that that will be delayed potentially back into November again uh, to you know ensure that that uh, with the, the event can go ahead. I mean, it's two years here without without an event. That makes it very difficult on the corporation because there's 50 full time people there. They run both Formula One and the MotoGP event at Phillip Island. Um, so they need to they need to have an event, but they need a realistic event to happen to start working on it. So, um, you know, as I said, it's it's realistic. It was it was we all knew that it was going to be delayed, or and then that it would be eventually cancelled. But uh, I'm pretty confident that if if they give it a realistic sl- slot in 2022, that will go ahead. That would likely be November, even though they are saying March at this stage. What was learned from the from the tennis? Because obviously the Australian Open is a, is a real highlight on the the professional tennis tour, and I, I know that there was a lot of um, I don't know I don't don't want to go as far as saying controversy, but there was definitely a lot of concern before that started, and you know there there were some test positive cases and things like that. Did that did the tennis factor at, at all into the decision to? you know, reschedule the, the, the Grand Prix or was that just a, a separate thing and the Grand Prix was just a victim of uh, subsequent circumstances? Well, I think F1 certainly dodged a bullet after the, uh, the, it was controversial, the, the Australian Open. There was a lot of uh, media coverage, a lot of outcry from people who, you know, you know, bringing, you know, 1,000 people in for the Australian Open, 2,000 people in for the, for the Grand Prix, it's it's a PR nightmare when you've got Australians overseas who can't got, come home. We've got locked borders, and uh, and you need to to. There's very you know um, it's difficult to bring people in. So people are outraged to have you know uh, well paid athletes coming into the country. So you know every day during the Australian Open there was negative media coverage people were upset and even when people could go to the to the open there was still a curfew so we had, people had to leave at uh, i think 9 p.m even before matches had finished so it was just really awkwardly done and uh and certainly in terms of the grand prix you know they weren't they weren't going to work with a bubble they, you know as soon as the government said that that the australian open couldn't go into a bubble um as formula one event as formula one events have done in europe it, it cast the die for the Grand Prix, and then there's just no way that, as I said, that Formula One would go into a into a two week hotel quarantine. So the decision, you know, as I said, the the die was set, and the Grand Prix uh, from then on, that's really all they could do. Even though the Grand Prix Corporation were continuously negotiating to have a bubble, but uh, you've you've set the the precedent with the with the Open. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Mark, I think you wanted to jump in and say something here as well. But, you know, it, it really is interesting because, uh, you know, we, we just uh, finished up the Olympics in, in in Tokyo, and that seems to have been a similar kind of a discussion and uh, very similar uh, feelings about that. But I'm really disappointed, obviously, for for many reasons that the Australian Open or sorry, the, uh, the Australian Grand Prix didn't go ahead as planned this year, because I was really quite excited 
as much as we've come, become used to seeing it as the, the, the traditional season opener, as it has been for a large number of years, I was actually really excited to see it get that that late season slot. And, and I can't help feeling a bit of, you know, quite a bit of a disappointment right now when we see this, what continues to be and hopefully uh, you know, promises to, to be an epic battle between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen that I can't help but feeling that there was a real opportunity to have something very special happen on the streets of Melbourne later on this year. But alas, it's not to be. And hopefully that uh, doesn't take away from the title uh, battle at all. But yeah, I can't help but feel that there, there was something special that's uh, maybe slipped through our fingers. One of the things that occurred to me over the last couple of days, and we've been building up some awareness that you were coming on the show. And I think a lot of people that listen to our podcast, obviously, we're familiar with you from your last appearance and from your own personal work. But for a lot of our listeners, they're so new to the sport of Formula One that a lot of them have never experienced an Australian Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they keep asking us is talk about they've seen on TV, they've seen the photos, but they've never experienced it live on demand in real time. And, And one of the questions that somebody had asked me earlier today was, you know what, if you can ask Stuart, get him to describe or compare the Australian Grand Prix against something that we know. What are the highlights? What makes it so special? And obviously, we know when we do land back in Melbourne, the track's going to be a little bit different for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past. But maybe speak to some of the highlights and some of the things that make the, the Grand Prix in Melbourne so special, just for those listeners that maybe haven't yet experienced it because they haven't had the opportunity. Sure. Look, I mean, Albert Park is two kilometres from the city centre. I'm right in the city centre now. It is so easy to get to Albert Park from the city. It's a it's a tram ride. There's free trams that go from uh, the city centre into Albert Park, and really, it is one of the most beautiful uh, you know parts of Melbourne to to host a race. You know, and Melbourne is known for its fantastic food and wine, and you know, it's a gastronomic centre. So. We're known for, for and as a coffee, uh, you know, centre of the world. So, you know, if you can imagine people in the morning, just, you know, everyone's got their coffees going into the into this park. It's, you know, it's, it's summertime, so the weather is fantastic generally. Um, sunshine, blue skies, and there's a real buzz about it because as, as it, for the most part, has been the season opener, there's a real freshness about What's going to happen? We've seen, you know, what's been happening in testing. Uh, you know, it's our first glance at all the new, the new cars, new teams, new driver pairings. Um, and the Grand Prix paddock itself is is very, you know, uh, easy. To, everyone's all hanging out, just, you know, talking and chatting after after testing. But for the fans, it's it, it's an easy place to get around. It's it's uh, You can walk most of the track with just a general admission ticket. And see all the different corners. You know, turn six, for example, is fantastic. General emission corner, and the end of sector one, and just they're absolutely on it there. And um, but as I said, you know, I mean, Melbourne certainly in recent years has, has has you know sort of pared down in terms of the funding that's gone into it. But there's still it, they still try to make it a reflection of Melbourne. You know, so there's lots of uh, sort of you know areas in which you can get Melbourne you know food trucks. Uh, Melbourne style food. There's uh, lots of music on, uh, and there's lots of sort of exhibitions and demonstrations. So it's it's a lively event. It's not just the racing. I think there's a lot of stuff going on off track. Um, I'm really excited for the changes. I've I've seen that the Grand Prix guys have taken me around to see all the changes. That you know, so it really looks exciting, and they haven't lost the character of what what was previously there. But as I said, it's all about the lifestyle. Beautiful warm weather. 
blue skies, plenty of good coffee, and then, you know, when, when the weather heat, heats up, everyone's ha having a beer or a wine and relaxing, watching racing, and uh, it's a perfect place to be. Well, if there ever was a, a pitch to make anybody want to go and watch the Australian Grand Prix, I think that was it, Stuart. Well done. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you, you touched on it very nicely there, the the changes that they're making to the track itself. And uh, Melbourne is not unusual in this uh, regard because we've seen some modifications that we'll see you know, shortly in September at Zandvoort with the new bank corner and the first time we'll see a Dutch Grand Prix since the mid-1980s. But we've seen uh, some changes. So we've seen the, the track revert back to its original state of Barcelona. They've uh, talked about making changes and some of the other circuits like i believe yas marina is one of them but how did you what was your what was your um, i guess your opinion on the changes that they've made to the track so far how do you think it will impact the racing at the australian grand prix well look i mean obviously we haven't seen any racing on it and i loved the track as it was that's where i fell in love with the sport you know so you know at the first the first race there i just it was incredible. So, you know, as, as a purist, I, I didn't really want changes to happen to it, to be honest with you. But, I mean, if you look at the stats, I think it's 18 passes over the last uh, three events at Albert Park. And that I think that's the second lowest compared to Monaco, which I think had 11, uh, not including this year. So you've got, to, you've got to focus on improving the racing. And obviously Formula One's doing that with its new era cars next year. But, you know, if you look at the back straight, I think they've, what they've done is they've tried to increase the amount of contestable corners and they've tried to improve, you know, that, that if someone makes a mistake, it's punished, you know. So they want to get people, you know, drivers alongside so they can go, you know, wheel to wheel. And the long back straight, the extended back straight will be, I think, the, it'll be the fastest part of the track rather than the main pit straight. So they'll get up to 330 kilometers an hour. They're going to add a DRS zone. They're pushing Pirelli to bring the softest compounds there. So the same as Monaco. Um, and, you know, they've just done it. I think they've widened, I think most of the corners, turn six is they've basically cut off the apex. So it's 70 kilometers faster there. And, you know they've they've uh, made the turn what was turn thirteen I think ninety degree corner which is important to take after that long uh, sort of the end of the back straight after that uh, quick uh, chicane at turn uh, eleven and twelve and I think just as I said you know they've they've done it for the right reasons they haven't dramatically made changes the back straight is longer to to try and get people side by side and and a pass into that quick chicane but I think generally they've made you know they've they've done it for the right reasons and, and they've made some good changes without ruining the character of it. And for off track, they've also reclaimed some of the land that that was used uh, for that chicane, so that there's cycling, there's walking, it's more green space for those who use it. And they've done it in line with the the vision for Albert Park's, um, you know, the, the the idea of what the, the best part of what Albert Park can be. So. Yeah, I think it's. I think generally be positive, but we'll have to wait until twenty two to see if it's if it's effective. And they're they're going to resurface uh, the entire track at the end of the year, so we'll have to wait. But it, everything looks promising from what I can see. 
Well, that's great. And uh, it sounds like they're really making use of all this uh, extra time to to do something, really try and improve the track uh, in all aspects, not just the surface, but the, the character of it as well. So, of course, like you say, the, the proof will be in the racing uh, next year. And, you know, as Mark pointed off the top of the show, I can't believe it's we've gone so long without an Australian Grand Prix. It, it almost seems uh, unnatural. Anyways, guys, we're just going to take a very quick uh, break here. We'll be back uh, very shortly to continue our conversation here on the Scootery F1 Pit Wall with Stuart Bell who is our special guest tonight. So please don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. Again, it's Mark and Mark joined by Stuart Bell at Stuart Bell F1 on Twitter. And that's the best way to follow him and follow his work. And Stuart, thank you so much for giving us uh, the, the update on the track itself. Now, you said that form, like, Melbourne and the Grand Prix there was where you fell in love with the sport. But did you ever get a chance to attend an Australian Grand Prix when it was hosted in, in Adelaide back in the day? No, sadly, I didn't. Uh, I've, I've worked in uh, V8 supercars. Previously, uh, I did a year of PR working with with, uh, with the Holden Racing Team, and that was in 2013. And that uh, we went to Adelaide for the Clipsal 500, and uh, they they had uh, Jean Eric Verne there in the Ferrari. I think it was the ESF 90, the 2009 car. Uh, oh, okay. So I haven't I haven't been there for a Grand Prix, but to go to the Adelaide track is just you can feel the ghost of the past there when you're there, and when that Ferrari. Formula One car was there. Oh my God. It was just, it was all, it would have been amazing. It yeah, was absolutely amazing. Been. And, um, so yeah, I wish that I, that I had, but, um, that was the closest I could get. And it was just, it lived up to its, uh, you know, because, and also Adelaide completely embraces the, the, the events. It's like a, a you know, a big country town. So they, they really get behind their events. So I can imagine what it would have been like, just spectacular. So in this, sorry, Mark, this is something I, I have to ask because all of our, our listeners are very, very curious about how deeply embedded motorsports culture is in Australia, whether it's MotoGP and you reference the fact that MotoGP has a hugely successful event on Phillip Island, whether it's the fact that Champ Car successfully ran at on the Gold Coast back in the day, whether it was Mick Doohan being a champion, whether it was Casey Stoner being a champion in MotoGP and now Daniel Ricciardo. And you also spoke to the V8 Supercar Series. What is it about Australia that that creates this motorsports culture or this appetite for motorsport? And you spoke to Adelaide as well. And we had a great listener a few weeks ago that had attended the race back in the day and was feeding us photos. And, and the same thing that you were speaking to was talking about 
the legacy of that event in that city, even 25 years later, that people still talk about it. And it's still part of the, the societal fabric of that community that it was so big, but maybe speak to, or, or maybe just address the, the ability of Australia, despite its relatively small population, when you compare it to something like the United States or the UK or France, how it's embraced and cultivated such a tremendous motorsports community. I mean, I think, you know, Australia has a very can-do attitude. Australians are very, we like to get, uh, you know, roll our sleeves up and get into it and, 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 and try different things and, and get involved. And I think motorsport and, and cars are a very big part of our, our, um, our heritage. You know, a lot, we have good public transport here, but people do like to drive. We do like the driving experience and we've got a long history in, in motorsport and in racing and, um, and in competition, you know, whether it's the Olympic Games, which we did, we did pretty well in, uh, and you know, it's. I think we, you know, we're sports mad generally. I mean, Melbourne is, especially is is sports mad, but we love competition and motorsport. It's a niche sport here in in Australia. We, you know, our big, biggest sport is football, the Australian Rules uh, Football League. Uh, we'd also like rugby, cricket, and uh, and sports like that. They're the major. They're the major interests here, but. Formula One and supercars are certainly, uh, they hit the back pages of, of, of all the major newspapers here. And we'd like to get behind our own. We've obviously had Sir Jack Brabham uh, and, and, you know, Alan Jones, world champions. And then Mark Webber was obviously very, very popular here. Um, and no nonsense, a very no nonsense character, a lovely guy, but no nonsense. And Daniel Ricciardo is the same. And we do like people who, who are just get on with it, no nonsense people. And uh, as I said, that spirit of competition and, and uh, no-nonsense races, that really appeals to, uh, to, to people here. You know, uh, Stuart, uh, there was two things that uh, you said just now that really uh, resonated with with me about uh, the the track at uh, Adelaide and the, and the ghost of the past, uh, especially because without even really going back and thinking hard, there's two moments that really stand out for me in in, in my mind. And the first of the, them was uh, Nigel Mansell and that epic puncture and tire explosion that he had when battling and ultimately losing the world championship in 1986. And then a second one was uh, obviously a lot more serious was Mika Hakkinen's uh, accident there in what was that 1995 or 1996, which I think sometimes goes a little bit more unnoticed because it was right at the end of the year and and Mika spent a couple of months in hospital there, I I believe, while he was uh, recovering. So yeah, I mean, especially a track that has uh, a lot of, uh, of memories uh, to it. But Stuart, uh, now talking about a track that has current memories, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you this, because we have uh, gained a substantial amount of new members to this community over the past uh, number of months, and it's uh, we've become the unofficial home of what we like to call Generation DTS, or Gen DTS. Now, I wanted to ask you, after I went back and watched Season 3, which Mark and I binged, I think, as uh, quick as humanly possible when it dropped uh, before the start of the season. Now, in the very first episode that deals with the Australian Grand Prix, was that a certain Stuart Bell I saw scurrying for a seat <laughs> at the press conference? Yep, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was uh, quite uh, quite funny because, uh, well, it wasn't funny, I mean, what you were doing, but I thought it was uh, quite interesting because I think we'd only spoken a couple of days previously and then I saw this uh, somewhat, uh, you know, quite a familiar face uh, diving for a seat there. But uh, yeah, I mean, how has been the reception to that Netflix series in, in Australia? I mean, it's been... It, extraordinarily popular here in North America. It's, it's quite astounding. I think it's the same here. You know, everyone watches Netflix 
And, uh, you know, the Drive to Survive series really has shown, I mean, when you watch the telecast, you get an understanding of the excitement and the vibrancy of Formula One, but Drive mm-hmm. to Survive certainly shows what it's like being part of the sport and the the behind-the-scenes stories of the drivers pushing with everything they've got to have their chance, the frustration, and, and I think the aggression. You know, there, there's certain things that you just cannot understand not being within a team, even even as a journalist, you know, having been worked within teams, you know, there's there's a there's an aggression between drivers who are rivals. There's an aggression. There's a frustration. There's the emotion of of being in Formula One and being in in elite competition. And I think mm-hmm. that's what uh, Drive to Survive really has picked up on is, you know, we, they are playing for big money. They're playing for big glory and. Everyone feels it, you know. Everyone feels that that pressure. It is a pressure cooker environment, and uh, it certainly has captured that. And the story, I think they've really picked the storylines very well in terms of, uh, you know, the major stories happening throughout the season. So that gives people an insight into it. But I think people really just want to see how you know how it ticks and 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 feel that emotion that that is so well beautifully brought to the surface by uh, by the Netflix team. You know, as a as a journalist myself, and more on the on the professional soccer side, and also covering some of the the national team games here in in Vancouver, it it really is quite interesting. It struck me when I first started doing that and going behind the scenes, not just in the press box or down on the sidelines, but sometimes going to the dressing rooms or walking around in the in the bowels of the stadium, and some of the things that you see and some of the things that you hear, and you sometimes you you, you tread that sort of fine line. You know, is, is that offside? Is that going too far? You know reporting this you know and uh, it, you know I, I thought that's why I found it so riveting because you know Formula One has always been a passion of mine and to sort of get a similar kind of look that I was used to to a certain degree uh, covering uh, Major League Soccer here I- I- in Vancouver I thought was just just wonderful and like you say they, they've picked the stories and the production everything's been uh, really really great but Mark is dying to you know for, for me to, uh, to to start talking about the season at hand we've, we've got a break <laughs> coming up in about six or seven minutes so we have had such an incredible start through the first 10 or 11 races now uh, of the season. Mark, I know you've, you usually have a, a bunch of really good questions or things that you want to talk about. So why don't you pick it up from here? Yeah, I, I completely agree with your summary. I think this is the championship that Formula One really needed. And the whole conversation about Generation DTS is such a valid one. And a couple of years ago, we were having a conversation with Tim Haraney, who is the on-air analyst for TSN up here in Canada. And we're talking about how exciting it was that Formula One has this entirely new fan base, or they're activating an old fan base. And it was principally driven by the fact that with Liberty, they've really embraced social media, and they're really hitting at a new audience. And with Drive to Survive, they're tapping into an audience that in many cases may have been compartmentalized because of the COVID uh, dynamic, but whatever the case, they've been able to tap in and cultivate and nurture this new fan base. And the comment that Tim made to me a couple of years ago that really resonated was, hey, look, they're lucky they're here. They've done some really great work. Now they have to make sure they keep them. And his point being that if we saw another three or four or five years of a single team and a single driver dominating the championship, that's ultimately not good for anybody. And I think what we've seen this year is perhaps more than anything, what Formula One wants. And we all, we hear all the conspiracy theories about this and that, but I think at the end of the day, all Liberty wants, 
all Liberty wants and all Formula One wants is a competitive championship that goes right down to the wire, regardless of the outcome. And it feels, and I know we're only halfway through the championship, but it feels like it's shaping up to go that way. From your perspective, I, I know there's still a half of a calendar left. Do you feel like this is something that could go right down to the wire that we could be watching an all-time classic? No doubt. I mean, it's 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 absolutely a vintage year. There's no doubt about that. I mean, with domination in Formula One, we've seen it obviously through the years, right from the outset, from Fangio and uh, you know Schumacher, and uh, and obviously you know Mercedes with seven straight title doubles now. And yes, it is getting very. I mean, we're seeing Lewis Hamilton at the absolute peak of his abilities. I mean, I think that's an, an impressive thing to watch. But you're right. We, what we want to see is competition right at the front and to have two different teams, two preeminent drivers at the absolute peak of their of their abilities. Max Verstappen, razor sharp, but dialed back from his, uh, his you know, uh, more sort of erratic self when he when he first joined Red Bull, he took a few years to to you know to work the edges off. But I think it's incredible. I mean, we've seen you know Lewis with four wins, Max with five. We've seen uh, Sergio Perez take his maiden win four. Red Bull his second overall. You know, Ocon in 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 Hungary. But that that you know that fight at the front between Lewis and Max is what we've been hoping for for many years and uh you know it's 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 thrilling we don't know which way it's going to go i mean i think the difficult thing is mercedes have have all but switched off their development red bull will continue to develop their car so whether it will swing back towards red bull and mercedes will have to really get far more aggressive on pace we'll have to on strategy we'll have to see but there's no doubt about it it's a fantastic season it's a shot in the arm for F1's uh, fan base and and great for all of us, you know, long-time fans to, to see, you know, two of who will be considered two of the sports greats to be uh, duking it out up front. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you raise such a great point because uh, Max really has, like you say, taken the edges off because we're, I'm guessing we're going back to now, was it 2018 when he had that shunt in FP3 in Monaco? And he started the race at the back of the grid. And then he shows up two weeks later in Montreal without his entourage. And I think was that that was that real milestone moment. I think that was a real coming of age moment for, for Max Verstappen because, uh, I mean, we have to remember, I mean, he's still a very young man. And we, we've basically watched him grow up and mature before our, our eyes. And I, I think that was... Well, of course, there's a lot to be written in that story before we can go back and really reflect on his career. But uh, I think this, where he is right now, you can really say that was that make or break moment that 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 he really was able to go in the direction that everybody wanted because there there was it was pretty obvious before then that he had the pace, he had the talent, and the question was, well, obviously he needs the car, but can also, you know, does he have, you know, the the, the stuff in between the ears, the mentality, and and, and the personality to be able to to, to do it uh, properly, or you know, be able to live up to the expectations. And I think by and large he he has, and it's really making it, it, it exciting. And like you say, it is really turning out to be an epic battle between these two, because I think it's it's obviously very different between the battle that Lewis had with uh, with Nico Rosberg for those couple of years when they were teammates. It was the inter-team thing. And, and that was juicy because there was this real 
you know, toxic relationship between the pair of them. And then I, I think there was a lot of hope that that um, the Sebastian Vettel era at Ferrari would have delivered more. And I think that we, we saw as, as close and as good as that was going to get, in the, at least in the first half of 2018. And sadly, that kind of petered out. And this is equaled up or lived up to that so far and gone beyond it what max has to do now is be able to come back from the second half of the season and keep going and progressing whereas sebastian and ferrari they fell off in the latter half of that season in 2018 absolutely i mean i think it's you know red bull would not have gone into the summer break thinking that they were going to be on the back foot in the drivers and the constructors i mean Mm -hmm. max had a huge uh, advantage i think it was 32 points after after Austria and then uh, had, had uh, yeah, uh, just uh, that crash coming together at uh, Silverstone and then Hungary, amazing that Bottas just speared into the back of uh, Norris and then took, effectively knocked both Red Bulls out uh, in terms of, you know, position. And, uh, yeah, two, two points for Red Bull in the last two races really is not where they would expect it to be. So, yeah, I think... And it was certainly their pace in Hungary was not indicative of what Red Bull can be. So I think coming back to Belgium, they'll be want to be on the front foot and uh, putting the hammer down and showing Mercedes, hey, we've we've got the car and the driver to do this. But yeah, it's 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 all to play for for sure. Stuart, one question Sorry. for you. <laughs> One of the things that's yep. really consumed so much of our bandwidth over the last three, four, five, six weeks has been the way that from a leadership perspective, kind of a leadership level down, when we talk about the Red Bull team, if it's Christian Horner, if it's Helmut Marko, their responses, especially in the media, to some of the on-track incidents. So whether it was the contact in Silverstone or some of the other things that have happened, so much of the F1 ecosystem over the course of the last four or five, six weeks has been consumed with the debate about is Christian Horner on side? Is Helmut Marko on side? Does does Red Bull have a case? Or are they simply taking F1 to a place it doesn't need to be from a negativity perspective in terms of battling with the FIA, battling with Liberty, um, outwardly accusing Lewis of being a dangerous driver, making inflammatory comments in the media? So much of what we've been talking about over the four la- last four or five or six weeks hasn't necessarily been what's happening on the track, but rather processing and digesting and talking about what's happening off the track, whether it's the protest, whether it's a Horner comment, whether it's a Marco comment, whether it's Mercedes defense. Is this something that that you've paid a close attention to? Is this something that you're a little bit more dismissive? Because from our perspective, Mark and I sit here and we look back and we, we know obviously F1 is a really competitive environment and every point matters. And if there's contact on track, you want to make sure that your case is heard and understood. But our perspective seems to be that over the last four or five, six weeks, maybe Red Bull has gone in a direction that we haven't necessarily seen before in terms of their ultra high level of litigation about on-track incidents, some of the inflammatory comments, potentially inflammatory comments that have been made through the media. What's your perspective on the way that the leadership of Red Bull have conducted themselves over the course of the last four or five weeks? I mean, I think it's not just Red Bull. I think every team are going to be political animals. You know, Formula One, it's million, multi-millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's, I mean, there's a cost cap now, $145 million US uh, that you're allowed to spend with lots of exceptions to that. But this is Formula One. It's an elite sport. Uh, it will be fought on track, off track, 
war of words on the media, not only does that fuel coverage for the sport, but it also, you know, increases the, the interest, you know, in, in the press and, and, and what's going on. I mean, a Formula One is, is a circus and uh, I don't necessarily agree that, that, that Red Bull have, have been gone too far. Yes, they, they say what they think, whether it's right or not, that's, that's up for debate. I mean, they were very uh, critical of Renault when, you know, in the, in the hybrid era, uh, leading to their split and then, you know, awkward, uh, you know, returning together. But that's Formula One. And as I said, it's they're playing for big money, big glory, and they will fight their corner in the, in the, in the courtroom, in the paddock, in the media. And that's one of the things I love about it. And I, and I, and I don't, I don't want them to, 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 to dial it down because then, I mean, it's great for the media because we can we can talk about it and and and, and harness that that narrative, but I, and and explain it, give perspective to it. But I think I wouldn't want it any other way because that's and that is also as we've talked about in, in Drive to Survive, that is the aggression, that is the level of commitment of everyone, not only the mechanics, the the management. Anyone in the sport is completely invested and so many people are uh, involved because they've loved it since they've been a kid. The drivers, they're all completely focused. A lot of them have started since they were four years old, so they are fully invested. So uh, I, I understand, you know, there's, for example, when there used to be a, a war of words between Bernie Eccleston and Ron Walker, the then uh, promoter for, for the Australian Grand Prix, and it was like, you know, Ron, Bernie would say, look, if you don't want to, pay the right price, we'll take it away from Australia. And that really did a lot of damage in the Australian press because people were people were up in arms because they were like, if, if Bernie wants more money, he's a billionaire, um, well, the Grand Prix can go and, you know, go take a hike. But, you know, it, uh, at the end of the day, it created news for Australia, it created news in the papers here. Whether or not it was good for it, well, probably wasn't good for it. But I think in terms of the general press, sporting press, I think it's all, all all fair in love and war, to be honest with you, as long as it's not over the line. You made two really great points there. One is the cost cap has obviously introduced entirely new pressures to a team. If if you make contact on the track and you don't believe you're at fault, but it's going to cost you a million and a half dollars to get a new track a car and tracker to rebuild that car, that has a significant impact on the way you can operate your team. And the other point too, and this is, this is something we're obviously guilty of, this kind of off-the-track dialogue obviously fuels conversation and it fuels consumption and it creates tweets and it creates Twitter stories and it gives us something to talk about. And as much as ultimately we talk about wanting to to focus on on the track action, probably nothing draws more ears to the podcast than that type of conversation. So you're absolutely right in the sense that one, there's a bigger cost to these teams now that there's a cost cap because there's additional financial pressures that they've never faced before. So, hey, you know, maybe some contact on the track in the past. Hey, that's an inconvenience. Now it's a significant impact to their ability to operate the team. But secondly, this type of narrative creates conversation, which attracts people to the sport and creates buzz and keeps people talking between Grand Prix weekend. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, it's only the top teams really that we're hearing from on this because they were spending... You know, three, four hundred million dollars a year. Uh, so there, there is the pressure is on them to come down, and that's very painful uh, because they've got huge workforces, huge costs um, to deal with, and so they'll have to start building it. Well, I'm sure they have already 
built it into their budgets because uh, otherwise they're not going to be able to get under the cap. So for the other teams, though, for you know your mid-grid teams and lower-grid teams, they're struggling to get up to the cap. So it's not going to be an issue for them. But um, so all this, all this talk about you know insurance, you know potentially insurance or one team being responsible for one other team's damage or whatnot. I think it's all just pressure to try and force up that cap uh, for the top teams to try and you know recoup you know, and give ease some of the pressure. But it's a challenge for those top teams. They've had to do that for a long time. And with F1's new era coming in, we want close competition so that, you know, a team, you know, a mid-grid team can win. So, that, you know, like we saw with last year at Monza, Pierre Gasly, he's made and win under maximum pressure. Okay, Hamilton was given a huge penalty, but how awesome was it to see him Oh my God! We've just won the you know the Italian Grand Prix. I still watch that and get goosebumps. You know, so we want to be able to see those sort of uh, moments where the underdog can win. And so having a cost cap, having a salary cap potentially coming in, uh, you know, new regulations that help cars get closer. I mean, that's what we want to aim towards. But uh, it's going to create pain in the short term, and that's exactly what that is. You know, it's funny when you say that, Stuart, because uh, one of the outlets that uh, that I've contributed to, to in the past, one of the most popular uh, articles that we would publish every year is when the uh, Major League uh, Soccer Players Union would publish the, the 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 player salary for the years. And of course, the set the, the the players and their their families usually weren't too happy to see <laughs> these, these numbers put out, but it was extremely popular. And as as much as you say, like uh, just the the con- the controversy that we've seen, and the you know, as Mark was uh, mentioning just now about like Red Bull and you know the litigation off the track and all these sorts of things people do love talking about and very much when it comes to things like you know cost caps and salary caps and things like that is for for some people it really gets under their skin but you know it, it is fun to talk about these things and to speculate especially in this sort of era that uh, potentially with the salary cap coming in that who knows maybe they have 50 million dollars to pay their drivers on top of the 130 million dollar salary cap that we're going to get to eventually and you know if you're a hardcore f1 nerd which i'm sure goes for all three of us uh, <laughs> on the line right now and for everybody watching and listening it's just always something uh, f- fun to talk about uh, a- as well but uh, Stuart, um, as we kind of move through things here you know we just want to get back to some of the the action that we've seen this year and and one of them that you so rightly pointed out was Esteban Ocon winning in Hungary last week. And as as painful as it was to watch that opening lap and all the, uh, you know, thousands and potentially millions of dollars of damage being done to the uh, you know, the contenders in that opening lap, very much like Monza last year, what's a situation like that uh, does is that even though the you know the the protagonists in the the title battle might be eliminated from contention in that race well max was uh, lewis wasn't obviously it does give the opportunity for somebody else to stand up and make a name for themselves and very much like you say we get goosebumps watching uh, pierre win at, at monza last year i i couldn't help uh, but feel you know so happy to see esteban win that 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 race and i think that was um it was it was I wouldn't say it was a long time coming because it hasn't it hasn't because he hasn't really had the car to do it but I think it is for him is a real shot in the arm for his own career because I think to date he has done very well in Formula 1 especially this is a guy that that lost out uh, on a season being the reserve driver for Mercedes and then you know especially for a young driver losing a season in what is a very short career for most guys to begin with is is very very significant Absolutely. And I think, you know, he he was 
signed on for that or penned, penned into that uh, Renault drive before Daniel Ricciardo snapped it up. Uh, so to, to, to spend some time on the side, yeah, absolutely frustrating. But he did his reserve for Mercedes, so they, they gave him as much time as they could and he got to see the inner workings of a world championship team. But, yeah, you're right, you know, great to see him win because he, he did it on merit under maximum pressure like Pierre in, uh, in Monza. He did it under maximum pressure from Sebastian Vettel. And uh, so he, he earned it. You know, it was, it was one on merit. Uh, even though, yeah, the 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 front runners were were effectively ruled out, but he, he pushed himself to the limit. He had uh, Fernando Alonso, obviously, uh, as his as his uh, rear gunner, holding back uh, Hamilton for eleven laps to run down the clock. But yeah, I think it's fantastic. I mean, Ocon is a great guy. I think everyone in the paddock really, uh, you know, thinks I mean, thinks he's a really kind-hearted person. He's decent to everyone around him, and he's worked hard for it. And I think you know he he's been. You know, he was GP3 champion. He came into the sport via, I think, DTM, and then uh, he had a standout stand-in for, for, for Mana before joining Force India, and he's shown plenty of potential. And so, yeah, the win really sort of sweeps clean any sort of race rustiness, and it's also great to see a new winner in Formula 1, which I think is something we all we all enjoy seeing. Stuart, uh, we're coming up on another break uh, in about uh, three or four minutes here. But uh, before we do that, I mean, there's obviously been so many big, notable and standout moments this season. What have been some of the other things that have really caught your eye? Uh, Apart from the big one at Silverstone with uh, Max and Lewis at Cops Corner, what were some of the other things that have really, uh, you know, stood out for you this season? I mean, I think seeing seeing George Russell uh, collide with uh, with Valtteri Bottas in uh, at Imola was was a shocking moment, and seeing him slap him mm-hmm. on the helmet, uh, I think he, he, the frustration that he's seeing, and I think he he's one of the big stories coming up after the season break. I think he will be penciled into uh, to Mercedes for sure. So seeing him, uh, he take his first points, obviously at uh, at Hungary for for Williams. Um, yeah, I think Bottas, his underperformance has, has been uh, quite shocking to see um, in terms of his downfall and another winless on track to being another winless season. But I think, you know, it's it, it's been it's been the sort of season where we don't know what's going to happen when it, when we go to a new track. Seeing in the Bahrain the first race, uh, you know, Verstappen passing Hamilton off track and then uh, having to give the place back. I think that's one of the most thrilling thrilling weight races we we've seen so far but there's just there's intrigue in each and every round yeah i know that that's some uh, some great points and uh, there is so many good races that are going to be coming up in the latter half of the season i, I suppose that there 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 could be some changes still depending on the the, the pandemic and other parts of the, the the world but for one of the races that uh, that i'm really looking forward to coming from from a dutch family myself is uh, zanfort and uh, you know they've been saying jan lammers the, uh, the the race organizer has been and also former formula one driver has also been uh, saying uh, recently that uh, they're expecting to pack the place at the beginning or just in a couple of weeks time which still seems very strange whenever i see it on the television you know we, we haven't experienced that here on the west coast of uh, canada but i'd like to look ahead to that in just a, a moment and um and then still a bunch of other topics we'd like to touch on in the time that we have uh, remaining so we'll do that in just a moment so guys don't go away we'll be right back
Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark joined again by Stuart Bell, F1 journalist based out of Melbourne, Australia. You can follow him at Stuart Bell F- F1. And of course, that's Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, and Bell, just like it sounds, B-E-L-L. And Stuart, uh, we were talking about some of the highs and lows of the moment uh, this year. Uh, Mark, uh, I know you had a couple of questions uh, you wanted to, to throw out there as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that we're most excited about, and we don't think it's a perfect product yet, but we have to give credit to Liberty. We have to give credit to F1. They've absolutely rebuilt the financial infrastructure and structure that is F1, and they've got it in a really great, sustainable place for the future, which is exciting. But one of the other things that they seem really keen on doing is innovating with the on-track product, the Grand Prix weekend, redefining what that could look like. And one of the things that we were excited about experiencing earlier this season was sprint qualifying. We'd been proposing for months, and I don't know if anyone's listening to us at Liberty in their offices, but we'd propose this concept of, you know what, build four four majors. And each of these majors, it could be a premier event in a key geographic location. The race hosting, the race organizers could pay extra money to have the benefit of kind of capturing this weekend and capturing this event. But we were big and keen on experiencing the sprint qualifying weekend. And we don't think it's perfect. I don't think we think it's a final product yet. But from your perspective, obviously having followed the sport and invested so much time in covering it and reporting on it. Your perspective on the sprint qualifying weekend, was it a good first effort? Is it worth pursuing? Do you think it's going to get better? I think we would love to hear your thoughts on the, the format and where maybe it goes in the future. I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was a fantastic thing to see. I mean, I, I come from seeing qualifying as being, the, you know, the, the fastest one lap, single lap on, on the weekend. Uh, and we certainly see that in qualifying on the Friday now. But I think it's exciting for the fact that it can, it can change the, you know, the, the layout, the horizon for the, for the race. You know, we saw Hamilton on pole and then in the race, Verstappen got ahead of him. So in the, in the sprint, I should say, Verstappen got ahead and we saw Carlos Sainz, uh, you know, um, coming into contact and, and dropping down the field and George Russell, I think we saw also come into contact and, and uh, you know, they, look, it, it has an ability to, 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 and this is the the whole aim of the thing is to, to create some sort of uncertainty and, and, and a chaotic element to the weekend to spice up the races. So they're going to have the next two at, uh, at Monza and then at uh, Sao Paulo, if, if, if the Brazilian Grand Prix does go ahead, uh, so I thought it was exciting. I think, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the second iterations of it and how it can be improved. 13 laps is a very short amount of laps, but to be able to have it without pit stops, uh, everyone's on, you know, generally on the same tyres, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting as something different, and I think Formula 1 needs a bit of chaos to shake things up rather than just having Mercedes and Red Bull at the front. There's a chance for uh, to inject some chaos. Well, I'm I'm glad that they put, uh, I don't want to say that they didn't put any thought into the previous attempt to try and spice up the qualifying, but it it certainly has worked out, at least on the first attempt, much better than that rolling cutoff that they they, they trialed several years ago. I always thought it was very strange that you had the qualifying going and you see some of the drivers walking around in the paddock out of their their overalls with a a hat on and a water bottle when technically, you know, they, they still could have been out there trying to qualify. So it is exciting. I'm glad to see that they are are trying these different things and some of the 
the, the different ideas that Mark and I have uh, tossed around is in uh, in light of the news that uh, that came out about a week ago that uh, the, the preference is to maybe have these um, these um, sprint races at some of the more historical circuits, which I understand makes a lot of sense. But we thought that it would be better if you could break it up uh, geographically. Have one in North America, one in Europe, one in in, in Asia, the Middle East. However, it works and try and divide it up uh, equally between geographically and also in in the calendar as well. So without seeing the provisional calendar for 2022, and again, this is another fun thing to kind of speculate and talk about and um, see where it goes. But we, we were very pleased to see how it went. And I thought it really added something to the weekend. And it it, it was very much uh, for, for myself, and I'm pretty sure for, for many other people, it was appointment viewing, because instead of uh, coming back to, I, I was, you know, based where we are, it's not always easy to watch everything live because it's uh, either in the middle of the night or very, very early in the morning. But uh, th- this was, was was very, very exciting. Really excited about it. Yeah, I think it certainly creates action throughout the weekend. You've got, you know, first practice and qualifying on Friday, second practice and uh, the sprint on Saturday and the race on, on Sunday. I think the only concern is if, if people start thinking the sprint is the race. You know, if I, I haven't I really haven't heard that much feedback. Obviously, we're in lockdown, so I'm not speaking with a lot of people uh, on mm. the ground at the moment. But I think if, if people start thinking that the sprint is the race, if people start mixing that up, then uh, that's the real con- real concern. But to be honest with you, I think it's it's doing more benefit than the uh, more more good than bad at the moment. And the the element of chaos is there. And if it can sh- shake up the order a little bit, great. Absolutely. Now, Stuart, we've talked about some of the highs, some of the lows, some of the off-track stuff. And one of the things I want to ask, and this is one I always have a little bit of fun with, is when it comes to some of the drivers that maybe fly underneath the radar a little bit, the unsung heroes, if you will, who's one of the drivers, or maybe you've got a couple of them that maybe haven't seen the headlines or maybe made haven't made the news as often as they've deserved this year because maybe being overshadowed between the battle that we've seen between Lewis and Max Verstappen all season long. I, I've got my pick. I'd be curious to hear yours. Well, I think, you know, for example, drivers like Sergio Perez, he's done a great job at, at Red Bull in terms of uh, keeping the, the, the fire uh, to, to Verstappen's feet and being able, you know, his win in Azerbaijan is exactly what he was employed to do, to win when Verstappen can't. Um, you know, Leclerc is, and, and science have been very impressive at Ferrari. Leclerc only missed out on on um, on his maiden win um, in, where was it, it at Silverstone, I think it was, where, where um, Hamilton, um, was it Silverstone? Uh I think actually, I think it was Silverstone. Yeah, where where uh, Hamilton uh, nabbed him t- one and a half laps from home. Uh, so I think that they're doing a very impressive job. Color Science has come up very quickly to speed at Ferrari in, in relation to other other drivers that have switched teams. So those those are my real picks. Tsunoda, I think, has got the the raw speed. Uh, he just needs a bit more experience, and and I think you know, he's an exciting talent that we're going to see. But I think like Verstappen, he needs time to come into his own. He's He's been trailing Gasly on points. I think it's 50 to 18 uh, there on points, so quite a way behind. But if he can pick himself up and and uh, and bring more points for Alpha Tauri, then, then they, he can bring them forward and challenge Aston Martin and, sorry, challenge Alpine for fifth. 
Yeah, one thing I thought was very interesting, I don't know if you saw this about a week or two ago, there was an article in Forbes magazine that uh, you know, we were talking earlier, or I made reference to the uh, Major League Soccer salary figures, and they came out with some of the, or reportedly, salary figures for some of the uh, Formula One drivers. I think it was the top highest, or the, the top 10 highest paid drivers, and they'd all be the ones that uh, that you would uh, would expect. And I, I thought it was very interesting. Now, if these, I don't know how accurate these numbers are, but being a, a publication like Forbes, I can't imagine that it would be, you know, it, it, there, there would have to be some substance uh, behind it. But I believe that the the number that was uh, put out there by them for Sergio Perez was an uh, annual salary of $18 million. And I think the, the combined salary for Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz was $20 million for the pair of them. And I thought if that is true, that is one hell of a good deal that uh, Ferrari has managed to, to do to have those two drivers under contract. I mean, Charles is obviously a known quantity and and very much looks like a potential world champion in the future. And, and Carlos Sainz was my pick for the unsung hero of 2021 so far. I think that, you know, he's had some pretty good races uh, this season, I thought. But the 20 million for the pair of them compared to multiple tens of millions for guys like Lewis and Max and, you know, Alonso and, you know, which you would expect, I thought was uh, was fascinating. Yeah, I think the, I, I, from what I understand, Perez's uh, uh uh, remuneration it, it, that includes a lot of huge bonuses. So I think I, I believe that his 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 uh, salary is actually uh, much less than that. But he's he's obviously got very healthy bonuses, probably equal or greater to his salary. Uh, but yeah, Carlos Sainz and and Leclerc, I can see fireworks between them. Uh, both of them. I mean, Leclerc's speed is is breathtaking. He is. He is just he is on on the same level, I believe, as Hamilton and Verstappen. And Science mm-hmm. is a real uh, yeah juggernaut. He he is exciting, and he will uh, be the thorn in Leclerc's side. So when they do get a, a, a car capable of the world championship, I can see them being maybe not as uh, furious as Rosberg and Hamilton were, but but uh, not not far off. You know, Ferrari is certainly a, f- a fascinating case because they really did an effective job, uh, you know, not just Mattia Bonato, but, uh, you know, all the Ferrari brass about a year ago. And they basically said, don't don't count on us to be a competitive team for at least, uh, you know, a couple of years. And I was thinking, well, maybe 2022, maybe 23, maybe it's going to take a couple of years. So I really lowered my expectations. And certainly they're not um, up there fighting with Red Bull and Mercedes each and every weekend. But we've certainly seen flashes of it this season. And what with the Bonato saying last week or just even uh, earlier this week that uh, they're going to introduce significant upgrades to the engine even later this season has uh, really had me rethink my position on where they are and what they've, um, you know, wh- where they're going because I really wasn't expecting to see them do as well of they, as they have. I mean, considering how dreadful they were three quarters of, uh, well, basically 75% of last season, wh- what's your opinion on what Ferrari's done so far this year? I think they're trying to take smart st- smart steps. Uh, they sixth uh, last year was was you know a low point. I think it was the the lowest since 1980 for them. Uh, so th- the only thing for Ferrari is to win, to win races and to win championships. That is what they are there to do. And so it's been very demoralising for them. Obviously, they they were very innovative, uh, innovative. I would say with with their power unit. Uh, uh, in previous years, and they got they got um, 
Well, they weren't they weren't found of anything, but uh, obviously they were they were penalised in some way with technical directives, and that's that saw their advantage completely slip because they built their car around a powerful engine, and that had a drag implications. So to come back and and come back to third, which is where they're equal third with McLaren, and they expect that they will take retake third outright. So. That's the best I think that they could could hope for to be behind McLaren, uh, sorry Mercedes and, and Red Bull. Now all they have to do is close the gap, and we'll see what happens with these new regulations. It's a hugely clean sheet uh, regulations for next year, so that gives them an opportunity to take a step change. And we heard from Jock Clear, uh, their senior performance engineer on on Beyond the Grid, saying he's very positive about where it's going he's seeing all the right things and obviously who knows what's going to happen with their with their competition but um you can never count ferrari out they've got fantastic facilities they're thinking they're moving in the right direction they're making smart decisions they're trying to be smart with their uh trackside operations so not making mistakes so third is the best that they could expect this year and if they can go on better next year awesome yeah, it certainly is a fun one to watch. And I can't believe they have gone so many years without having a world champion. It, it's, you know, especially when they were uber successful in the early 2000s with Michael Schumacher and just the fact that they are a Ferrari. But I, you know, I want to move on now because um, you had a chance to talk with Daniel Ricciardo just a couple of weeks ago at the, at the, at the British Grand Prix. And Danny is a guy that Mark and I, we've talked about a lot uh, this year. And um, so we'd be be very curious to to find out what Daniel had to tell you, where he's at, where he's hoping to go, because I, I, I think it's fair to say that he, I would expect him to say that he would feel like he should be doing better so far at McLaren, but obviously he's had some, some issues extracting the full potential out of that car and driving it to the standards and to the level that he would expect of himself. Absolutely. I think he... he I spoke to him at Silverstone and he was, you know, he's, he's, he loves McLaren. He loves the facilities. He loves the team. He feels like his relationships are gelling in there. He feels like he's got his feet under the table, but the car does not suit his natural style. We've heard about him talking about the braking. I think he's, he's certainly made strides on, on his braking. That's his biggest strength is, is, is his braking. Uh, but it, the car doesn't suit his natural style. He's fighting it. Uh, around the lap and that's not what you want as a Grand Prix driver you want to feel like the car is an extension of you and that's where you get the best results is being at one with the car taking your car to the to the limit you know so and he can't do that and I think that was very frustrating for him we spoke at length about it and what it is and you know really I think for the first part of the season he was trying to bring the car to him I mean yeah he was trying to bring the car to him in terms of you know, changing things, making different settings, setups and whatnot and trying to, yeah, tweak things around his own style. But he now realises he can't do that. He's certainly still asking the team for developments about taking things back to his natural style. But I think like any Grand Prix driver who's driving a car that doesn't suit him, you have to adapt because you're not always going to be able to drive a car that, that suits your natural style. So I think that's been a significant challenge. So he's enjoying his time at McLaren. There's no doubt about that. He feels, you know, he got to drive Senna's McLaren at Goodwood and that was a real special moment for mm. him to sort of put himself in the car and imagined how what Senna was experiencing when he was in the car. But I think 
yeah, it's it's been difficult, but I think he, he feels positive about coming out of this funk and this ability to not get it on top of the car. Stuart, uh, you know, Danny, he's not one of the youngest drivers on the grid, and I mean, he, he's by no means, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> past it or over the hill, but he, you have to think that maybe in the back of his mind, maybe just uh, the, the clock is ticking a little bit. Do, do you get any sense when talking to him that there's uh, maybe a bit of urgency at where he's at mentally in his career? Yes. I mean, I think that's why he jumped to McLaren. Uh, you know, he... he he was frustrated at Renault. I think he, you know, they they he got two podiums for them at Renault in the in last year, and that was a that was a really great way for him to send off uh, his time with at Renault. But he the clock is ticking down, and he realizes he needs to see the progress. And he made that decision even before the season had started for for him at Renault. So that was a, quite a gamble. But um, McLaren are the form team. McLaren are the, the form mid-grid team. They're, they're on an upward trajectory. They have been for a number of years. And like Lando Norris, who I spoke with, um, I think it was in Austria, uh, he he sees this as – that's why he signed on. They both, they both believe that McLaren will give them a proper opportunity to move forward. And to be honest with you, there's not the chance – to go to Mercedes, there's not the chance to go to Ferrari. So, um, and I'm sure Dan doesn't want to go back to Red Bull. So, <laughs> McLaren is 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 the is the place to be. And if they can pull out a competitive car next year, which they well can do with a Mercedes engine, then chapeau to him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you talked about uh, that, that real emotion watching Gasly win I, I, at, uh, at Monza last year, I thought one of the great moments that was really captured nicely in Drive to Survive Season 3 was Lando in Austria last year when he got that podium, even though, you know, Lewis had that five-second penalty and that real push in the last uh, several laps to get within that five-second uh, buffer, that five-second, uh, you know, gap that he needed to, to take that, uh, you know, place from, from Lewis and his emotion, you know, afterwards, we can hear it over the race radio when you see the camera pictures you know i, I couldn't help but uh, you know the, you know choking up a little bit myself watching it because i found that a very very real moment and i think that it's a great team for both of them i mean look i mean obviously this is a team that's gone from you know the, the loftiest of uh, the, the pinnacle of formula one and then has also hit rock bottom and you know the, to come back that the, the way that they they have over a fairly short amount of time to compare to where they were four five six years ago i think is a, a incredible i really look forward to seeing where where both of these guys go uh, from from here, but as we uh, you know we're, we're drawing to a close here, um, uh, Stu and and Mark. Before we go, I just wanted to. This is one email we had from Carlos Hernandez, one of our listeners in in Houston, Texas, and I wanted to read this one out. Uh, I, I I did a bit of research for this one, and I'll, I'll just read it for you. And um, it, it's kind of cool. So uh, Carlos has to say, "Hello, Mark and Mark. I listened to your recent podcast and the email that you shared from Bitter Brag and." Uh, Bitter Brad in Pittsburgh struck home with me a little bit. I'm from a blue-collar background, and while it doesn't preclude me from entirely supporting silver spoon athletes such as Lance Stroll, I often find myself cheering for the athletes that ha- hail from more humble circumstances, such as Esteban Ocon. I recently listened to a podcast in which I learned that Valtteri Bottas served a short, com- short compulsory stint in the Finnish mil- military. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, so this fact intrigued me. Do you know of any other past or present F1 drivers that are also veterans of their respective uh, militaries? So first of all, well, first of all, Carlos, thank you for your service and for all the other vets out there, and especially those of you in the community that are on active service and put yourselves in harm's way for our benefit. 
I did look into this one, and there is a bit of a, a common thread here. So other for, uh, Formula One uh, drivers, past and present, that have served in the military include two former world champions. Both of them are Finnish, and neither of them are Mika Hakkinen. So Kimi Raikkonen served a compulsory stint in the, the Finnish army, as did 1982 world champion Keke Rosberg. And the very first world champion, Nino Farina, who won in 1950, was a cavalry officer in Italy in the 1930s, I believe it was. Anyways, um, Carlos goes on to say, interesting details such as this provide depth to athletes as human beings and deepen my engagement with the sport. Do you happen to know of any other interesting personal details regarding F1 drivers or other significant F1 personnel? So, Stu, I'm going to throw that one to you. Do you, do you know of any you know, anybody that has an interesting you know, side story? Because as we know, like a lot of these guys, I mean, they, they this is basically all they've done from karting as a kid and, you know, they've gone up uh, through the the different formulas. I mean, we talked uh, not so long ago, uh, ago about uh, Sergio Perez said, you know, he basically gave up his childhood to move from uh, Mexico to go to Germany to to focus on his uh, racing career and, you know, everything he he gave up on a personal side. So any other stories like that that you know of? Well, I believe that uh, Nikita Mazepin also is trying to negotiate his uh, Russian service uh, yes. of the military. And as I said, as you said, thank you for everyone who serves uh, in the military to keep all of us safe wherever you are. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I know that, I mean, example, uh, Sebastian Vettel loves uh, old antique motorcycles that he does up, uh, collects British records and loves British humour. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo has a, has a brewery um, that he, and he also loves fashion. Um, in terms of Real interest. I mean, it, it is it is it's difficult to find them. When I do a lot of lifestyle interviews with drivers and try to delve into what they're they're interested in, but it is it is very difficult to pick pick them up on on those sort of things because they either train a lot or they or they're relaxing at home. I mean, you know, if you look at Mick Schumacher, I mean, he he goes and hangs out with his dog and uh, and goes for walks, and that's and that's pretty much it. But um, I mean, Lando Norris obviously. With his gaming, he loves to stream on Twitch. He plays drums. Uh, he's quite an interesting guy. I think you know that's why people, a lot of people, identify with him because he he likes to get online. I think you know a lot of the drivers are gamers. Pierre Gasly, Call of Duty, uh, as well as uh, as well as um, yeah, as well as Lando Norris. Um, I think even Lewis Hamilton plays Call of Duty as well. So. Um, I oh, I play Call of Duty. Maybe I can get in some online game with <laughs> wishful thinking. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They're all very focused, that's for sure. Yeah, no, that, that that's awesome because, uh, you know, I, I think that we have um, – a lot of preconceived notions about like these, uh, you know, Formula One drivers and this. I mean, they, they obviously live, um, you know, very different lifestyles than we do, but it, it sometimes is interesting. Uh, well, professional athletes of any stripe, uh, some of them, you know, they, they lead very normal and kind of a very different lifestyles than what we uh, perceive uh, that them do, you know, to, with all the exposure and the, the obviously the, the, the big salaries that they, that they earn. Mark, did you want to throw something in there as well? No, only, and this just ties back to something that you and I have talked about so much. Much, which is prior to Drive to Survive, especially under the Bernie Eccleston era, we had so little line of sight and visibility into the mm -hmm. personality and the personal lives of these drivers. And when Liberty came in, they opened up social media. We got we got a kind of a sliver of sneak peek, but Drive to Survive 
created a relationship between the audience and the drivers. And when we talk to the Gen DTS audience, for so many of them, the reason they're attracted to and so incented to watch the Grand Prix race weekends is because I know I know Daniel, I know Lando, I know Lewis. I've never met them, but I know enough about their personal life that I've created an attachment, a bond. And that's really fueling so much of the interest. So when we talk to our audience now, it's, it's interesting. We did a survey before the beginning of the season, and we surveyed our thousands of listeners, most of whom are American, but we surveyed them and like, who's your favorite driver? And obviously Max was popular and, and, and Lewis was popular. Daniel Ricardo is hugely popular in the US, especially in Texas and on the West Coast. But we did the survey again recently and now it's Lando, 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 Lando. But again, so much of it goes back to what is it that you like about the wall? You know, I like his race craft and he's really racy, but did you see this thing he did off the track? And did you see this Twitch video that they built relationships in a new way? So again, going back to DTS and it seems like everything with us goes back to DTS, Mark, but it's really created a bond between the audience, especially this new activated fan base and the drivers. And that's fueling the interest in the actual race weekends, which is just fantastic to see. It's good because you want, you, you want to, you know, I want to see the, the, the interest in, that the drivers have, you know, I mean, it's, you know, Romain Grosjean likes to cook, you know, and he, he <laughs> put out a cookbook with his wife, you know, so, but I think, you know, Lando is so popular because he's so down to earth and you can joke with him. And I think when you interview a lot of elite sports people, they're, they're, a lot of them are quite socially maladjusted, you know, and yeah. because that's all that's all they know is is their craft. They're 150 percent dedicated to that. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you speak with someone who is normal, normal, I mean, what is normal? But you know, when someone is down to earth and relaxed, it just uh, you can connect with them. And I think that's you know, it's the guys like you know Lando and and Dan, um, you know, and and George and uh, and Esteban knock on who you can talk with and, uh, and they're, they're happy to be open about themselves. I think that's, that's, that's what all, all of us want to do is connect with them and then see them do well on track, you know? Yeah, it it is very true, and I've I've learned that uh, myself over the years. That sometimes you know when you, and and it all comes down to individual people and how they are. And and some some athletes doing the media thing is something they don't like. It's just part of the job. It's just go in, answer the questions as few as few as words as humanly possible, and then then move on. But the the ones that that have always stood out for me are the the, the ones where you know th- there is like a genuine back and forth. You know, there, there's more of a conversation rather than me pitching questions and just getting you know, an answer back. And I, I think that's why, you know, especially watching like Lando, watching Danny and, and guys like that, you know, I, I appreciate them more because, you know, having interacted with the, with with many professional athletes that there seems more genuineness there when when i see them talking in in the media and certainly you know having the sense of humor that the both of them have is uh, is really quite uh, fun to see as well as, as long as they don't uh, you know they, they don't force them to rap again like mclaren did <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the car launch this year although i thought it was rather a funny moment uh, musical skills uh, you know notwithstanding although i think lando did get a chance to get on the drums or was it daniel i can't remember I think they both got a chance to do something. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know. I mean, not I don't want to uh, hold you guys up, but I think it, you know, for the media, when we when we get when we get time with a driver, it's ten minutes. I mean, that is it. Yeah. And I might be I might be serving three publications, four publications with the one interview. So I've got I've got to ask very pointed questions. You know, I might mm-hmm. have ten questions to 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 throw at them, and each of them serves a purpose in terms of 
finding out what they're doing about their season, about their lifestyle, about travel or what, what have you. So, you know, we're, we're doing our, the media is trying to do their best in, in I mean, there's, there's obviously different qualities of journalists out there, but I think, you know, the, the public doesn't generally see how, how tough it is to, to you know, um, get everything you need to say in uh, in 10 minutes. So um, it is great when you do have someone who is very open and, and chatty and you can you can uh, open it up that just that little bit more. I always found it also a little bit intimidating when, you, when you're trying to do an interview with someone and they send one of their media people along as well and they're standing right beside them with a little, uh, you know, recorder getting something as well. And, and, and sometimes I always feel like, you know, they try to be professional and, you know, about it as well and not try and be put off. But I do, I do, you know, I have to admit that personally, I do find that a little bit off-putting sometimes. Not that I ask, you know, really offside questions or try to get a, a controversial comment, but still sometimes, you know, <laughs> it, it feels like, you know, like, you, you see a policeman parked on the side of the road. He may or may not have his radar gun out, but it makes me feel like I should be behaving myself a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more, if I could put it that way. I've got a funny story. Yeah. I was doing an interview with Takuma Sato years ago, and, oh, right. yeah. uh, and his press officer was hanging just in the background, not not too close, and he was talking about a test day, and uh, and just you know, I think he was at Super Guri, so he's saying oh something about the test. It was great. I went to Paul Ricard or what have you. Anyway, we finish up the interview and I'm walking out and the press officer says that test was actually not on August 25th. It was August 24th. <laughs> you were over there. Like, how did you, you know, so obviously she was trying to be as, as uh, non-intrusive as possible. That that's the, shows the professionalism of the PR, but, it, you know, it's uh, it's incredible sometimes that you're bowled over by their, you know. It, it's good that she picked that up because I can be accurate with my reporting. Yeah, discreetly, uh, you know, listening, but not really showing it uh, too, too much. <laughs> that's a great story. All right. Well, Stuart, uh, I, you know, that's uh, all we've got uh, time for tonight. Uh, before we let you go, please remind everybody where they can find you online and uh, the, the best way to follow you on social media. It's just Stuart Bell F1 on uh, Instagram and uh, and Twitter and uh, follow the inside line on uh, on social media. I, I produce that weekly show. It goes out uh, on Rev TV in Canada uh and other other stations throughout the world but again really appreciate your support guys and everyone's what everyone watching awesome well thank you so much Stuart, and thank you all one and all for listening and downloading uh, the show uh, tonight we will be back there won't be any show on monday this week uh, we're just uh, doing the weekly show for now until the season picks back up in a couple of weeks and as always, best way is to follow us on Twitter at f one pod and make sure you tune in on Thursday nights for the Spaces Chat, which Mr. Mark Hamilton always does such a great job hosting. And of course, if you want to send us an email, you can do that as well at f one pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>